Namaste and welcome to a premiere of the Bharat Vartha Weekly with Abhishek Paul, Nirav, Kanodra and myself. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll run you through the news and events of the week and uh, get some perspectives from our guests. So hi Abhishek, hi Nirav, how are you guys doing? Hi Roshan, hi Nirav. Hi, good. all good, all good. Okay, uh, so plenty has been happening in the world uh, clearly, right? Uh, especially in Afghanistan, uh, right? Taliban have taken control of Afghanistan. Uh, there's also the fact that, uh, you know, uh, 450 Indians are stranded there and aside from that, there's a new needless vaccine that has been approved. Uh, and then we're seeing a clampdown on tech uh, in China, right? And of course, we'll round things off with uh, something positive. Uh, the Indian cricket teams win against England at the Lords, right? So plenty to discuss. Uh, but as usual, let's start with a couple of the episodes we put out uh, last week. I thought both of them were amazing, right? Very different. and uh, But again, a lot of good insights and anecdotes and things to that effect. So Nirav, what did you think about uh, the Century. Actually, all the episodes, so not just this one, but even previous episodes uh, with uh, Dr. Uday Kulkarni, they've been very enlightening for me because for everyone, Indian history kind of moves on from the Mughals to the British rule. And you've got the all of 18th century where Marathas were dominating over India. Uh, they were controlling all from like uh, from Lahore, from Atak to Katak, uh, so on the eastern seafront, and all the way in South India to like uh, Mysore and even Tanjore. So I think this is brought out quite well compared to like his previous books. Here, this is one book which encompasses the whole Maratha rule from the time of Chhatrapati Shivaji till like the last part in 1818. And the Battle of Panipat, where a lot of people feel that oh, the Maratha rule ended, it doesn't actually end there, though the British have the upper hand. So I think it's quite an interesting book. I've just purchased it on my Kindle. After listening to the episode and I plan to read it soon. So definitely I think it's well worth uh, listening to. And if you like the episode, then you should buy the book as well. This is just a 300 page book. So that's a selling point compared yeah. to previous books, which are more detailed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I will be buying the book uh, and I look forward to reading the book as well. Uh, a lot of Dr. Kulkani's books are very dense and very well researched, right? So this is going to be a, a light casual read. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Abhishek, what do you think about uh, uh, the episode with uh, Sri Vijay Gokhale? So there was a really great episode uh, with uh, Vijay Gokhale, who's, who's uh, not only the former ambassador to China, but also the previous foreign secretary of India. Once Mr. Jay Shankar became the foreign minister, Mr. Gokhale took over as the foreign secretary. I think in this you know, episode, uh, Amit Paranjpe and Mr. Gokhale talked about both of his books. The first one being on Tiananmen Square and the second one called The Long Game, right? In which he talks about how the Chinese negotiate. I think a couple of very interesting points that I took away was the fact that he emphasized how little Indians know about China in general. And that applies to almost everyone I know, including myself, right? So because uh, our, let's say, uh, exposure to uh, Western and especially US culture, news, media is so much, and also that the language is same, we kind of are pretty much well versed about that. But China with a different language and an opaque political system means that we hardly know anything. So as he said, you know, hardly any college kid can tell you name 10 Chinese cities, right? But probably can tell you 30 US cities, right? That was very interesting. I think he also talked about a very interesting aspect, which is the Chinese feeling of national humiliation. 
which is kind of ingrained in them and that lets them or leads them to whatever actions that the ccp takes today in uh, especially their foreign policy right so it's a very powerful driving force Uh, and one which you need to understand if you have to understand the chinese yeah absolutely i found it uh, fascinating especially the couple of tips that he had on uh, negotiation right on how the chinese negotiate including you know uh, setting the agenda very carefully uh, and that being a very important part of the negotiation and also managing perception above everything else right so given that you know china is increasingly relevant in this uh, world that we are living in uh, again wonderful books to read and uh, i am told also that this is also for the casual reader both these episodes are based on books uh, for casual readers so uh, do check them out we have linked them in the description all right moving on to the first piece of news for the week as expected uh, the taliban have taken control over kabul afghanistan's government has collapsed and the president has fled the country uh, he joined an exodus of his fellow citizens and foreigners the taliban released a statement to the associated press stating that they will look to form an and i quote open inclusive islamic government dozens of nations called on all parties involved to respect and facilitate the departure of foreigners and afghans who wish to leave so abhishek we've discussed this on multiple weeklies earlier right uh, but what was it like um, you know to see the eventuality play out last week yeah so i think uh, so there is a very famous quote from lenin which is used these days where he said there are decades where nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen and i mean i can't think of a better example than what happened in afghanistan uh, you know with this whole saga of the taliban suddenly taking control of the country i mean i can't remember another historical event actually playing out uh, with such suddenness since what led to the afghanistan war in the first place which is 911 right i think i mean we can go back a long time in history to sort of debate this probably you can do a separate episode on that but to sort of do a quick recap i think why did the us uh, want to withdraw i would say that over the years the public opinion in us had become you know anti uh, foreign wars and so that has been a public opinion that has been building slowly in the us over the years donald trump recognized that during his campaign and he sort of brought back a jacksonian uh, isolationist foreign policy strand in the united states right so he was interested in rolling back uh, the us uh, adventure in afghanistan and to that effect his administration worked on the doha agreement with taliban which the agreement which got finalized in 2020 basically said that the us will pull out its troops from the country on the other hand the taliban has to ensure that the country's territories are not used by al qaeda for terrorist operations and also there was the term that taliban and the afghan government will work on peace talks right so this was broadly the terms of the doha agreement but what happened is the afghan government which was sort of propped up by the us led by ashraf ghani they were not supporters of this agreement to begin with uh, one of the other key aspects of the agreement was release of a large number of prisoners you can call them taliban fighters or you could call them terrorists right who were in prisons but they had to be released as part of this agreement so what played out after that is that taliban kept gaining ground throughout afghanistan as the 
western countries started pulling out their troops what the taliban very cleverly did is they avoided targeting directly the us or these western troops so they did not suffer casualties all the casualties kept happening on the afghan military come police side of it right and so in a very staggering pace at a very staggering pace over the last few months which got accelerated towards the end of july and in august taliban kept gaining district after district throughout the country they captured big uh, provincial capitals and finally kabul on 15th august lot of the latter part of the capture happened without fighting right when the other side the afghan military slash police basically gave up they did not indulge in fighting so this is what happened and why it happened what has really been amazing or incredible to watch is how it happened right the pictures that have gone out uh, from there the have basically shown a sort of humiliating surrender by the united states now president biden gave a very strong speech justifying his uh decision he basically said that this is what we had committed to in the doha agreement and if the afghans themselves will not fight for their country then no one can help them i mean he gave a very damning and shocking sort of indictment of the afghan forces which has been widely criticized because fact of the matter is they have lost more than 50000 people in the last few years fighting this war against taliban so it is not that you know uh, there was a lack of bravery per se in them or various sort of factors have been pointed out by media and experts on actually what happened so i'll probably give you a few points for us to think about one was this uh, local regime that was propped up by the us came through various disputed elections and was a totally corrupt regime it was an out regime which was out of touch with the locals it was heavily centralized did not share power properly with the rural afghan areas so that was a big issue right and that is something which the taliban has cleverly used in their propaganda to point out the shortcomings of the erstwhile regime right secondly the military and the police they were sort of uh, a not they did not have probably the 300000 big number which is talked about but uh, whatever numbers they have they were sort of trained as a, a force multiplier to the us forces so if the us does aerial bombings and gives aerial support to an operation then they are able to you know fight well but with the us sort of pulling the plug off uh, you know they really struggled and they could not really cope up with the taliban who were sort of hardened fighters i mean the one of the big factors is this pulling out of air support so i was reading somewhere that you know afghans wanted russian planes for their military but the us insisted obviously to buy their hardware and then the us you know switched off the support of that hardware so how are they supposed to function right some of the other things which are being heavily criticized is why this troop withdrawal timing during the summer where it is much easier for the you know taliban to fight and then also the order of withdrawal like why did you withdraw so many military forces first leaving behind so many civilians and you know afghan support staff like or partners as they call them so the sort of scenes we have seen are pretty horrendous right people trying to somehow reach the kabul airport uh, talking of airports i think another fatal mistake was them pulling out of the bagram airfield right that's where you could actually stay in control of the country using aerial power uh, giving that up was also sort of uh, very fatal to this cause so i mean the pictures that we have seen are you know really shocking 
uh, and there's a lot of blowback that is happening probably in the United States. Even though most people supported the withdrawal, there will be very difficult, it will be a very difficult, a bitter pill for Americans to swallow it, right? Given the kind of uh, public humiliation that they have suffered. The next yes. flashpoint I see is uh, what the question regarding refugee intake, right? So how much of that uh, happen and all that that will be a big sort of political football in the u.s the days to come yeah thanks for that uh, very comprehensive summary i think uh, it certainly dents the uh, u.s competence as such right on the world stage you know sridhar Vembu had uh, tweeted uh, that you know the same kind of competence the u.s displayed in afghanistan is also running the u.s federal reserve it took uh, two decades for the results to become plainly visible in afghanistan it's worth keeping that in mind right you could try to impute some kind of a 3d chess uh, you know some Something, uh, some great strategic move from all of this, but it just comes down to. I think the simple answer comes down to like lack of competence. I think, right? So, uh, which is you know what uh, you also mentioned. All right, uh, we'll return to Afghanistan in just a bit. Um, but in some positive news, the world's first DNA vaccine against COVID-19 has just been approved. India's drug regulator announced the approval of Zykov D vaccine, a three-dose jab that has been tested on thousand people belonging to the. 12 to 18 age group. The vaccine uses small rings of DNA that contain genetic information to deliver the jab between two layers of the skin. This makes it India's first needle-free COVID-19 jab. DNA vaccines are relatively cheap, safe and stable. They can also be stored at higher temperatures between minus 2 to 8 degrees Celsius. So Nirav, looks like I mean this solves a wide variety of uh, problems right? that we have with existing vaccines. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, sir, absolutely. So like a very big positive news. Uh... We were actually expecting that uh, approval to come or like they were doing phase two uh, trials actually during the peak of the second wave where the Delta variant was the major variant in India. So I think it has 66% efficiency. They tested on 28,000 people. Uh, so that's quite a large trial. Out of which 1,000 were in the age group 12 to 18. So the current vaccines being administered in India. Uh, they are only meant for adults at the moment. So this is one vaccine which uh, can target the age group 12 to 18. Uh, that is about, you would say about 12 to 13 percent of Indian population. So that's about a 15 crore population. And so once this is uh, widely available, I think it helps to get a lot of children vaccinated. Uh, adolescents can, once vaccinated, schools can reopen. So there's a very big positive externality there. Also, uh, this is uh, not injected via needle, but it's an intradermal injection. So uh, just uh, pierces the layer of the skin, not all the way to the tissue. So probably people who are like hesitant due to worries about needles or being pricked, etc. I think this is reduces hesitancy a bit. And finally, I think it is good that India has independently developed like another vaccine on its own with a different technology. I think this goes a long way in uh, establishing like our R&D culture. Indian pharma companies, which are earlier known uh, just to be manufacturing generics once they were went off patent. I think independent research, it's a big drive for it. As well as uh, we've got a huge population. Unfortunately, the uh, capacity for Zydus Canada is about one to two crore. So it's one crore a month right now to manufacture, ramping up to two crore by October. So this will add more number of vaccines in the market. Probably, in my opinion, probably this will be mass marketed towards children. I think uh, for adolescents between 12 to 18, the adults who already got one shot previously wouldn't be taking this one. 
And the only disadvantage probably is that it is a three-shot vaccine. So again, there is a capacity constraint, but it adds something. We are on target by December to probably vaccinate all the adults and now hopefully a lot of the adolescents as well. Around 450 Indians are stranded in Afghanistan. Uh, the government of India is coordinating with the United States and other embassies to assist in their return. Reportedly, those in Kabul aren't able to leave their residences without approval from Taliban guards to travel to the airport. Abhishek, uh, you know, we discussed at length on what is happening in Afghanistan. Uh, what do you see as an evacuation plan for those who are stuck there? And also, I think somewhere there was uh, some talk about CAA and things to that effect, right? I mean, if you could also like... What India has done so far is had more than 200 people evacuated. So there was the first tranche or first aircraft for about 40-50 people who were mostly the embassy staff. And after that, about 150 more in the second flight back, which included, you know, even journalists, right? And other Indians who were in Kabul and who could basically, who were able to reach the airport. And now, as you said, about 450 or so, I think the numbers are not clear for any country. Even the US is struggling to figure out exactly how many of their citizens are remaining. So today, I believe there was some news circulating that certain Indians had been picked up by the Taliban folks. Basically, they were abducted as they were trying to reach the airport. But latest media reports seem to indicate that is not the case. And so far, Indians have not been uh, harmed uh, in Tal- by the Taliban folks. The Indian Air Force will continue to do its best over the next week or so to get all Indians out safely. I think that is the effort for all foreign countries who have presence there. Coming to the other aspect, I think we were discussing on another topic, but any event eventually becomes a domestic political you know, football issue, right? Uh, this issue again has sort of got tied up to the whole CAA-related discussion. So uh, there was some initial press release where it was said that Indians will prioritize Sikh and Hindu Afghanistan folks uh, as part of the rescue. But later it was quite categorically mentioned that India is opening up a special category of visas for which any Afghanistan citizen basically can apply for. You need to have obviously certain amount, certain link to India. So you should have a family member or something like that uh, in India to sort of apply for it. And then obviously the Indian uh, foreign office will look at it. So I think India is doing its best possible in terms of, you know, taking in as, as many folks from Afghanistan as is practicable, right? I think people will try to conflate uh, refugees and uh, citizenship and asylum and these kind of issues in these debates. I think it's best to keep each of these categories separate. I think there's no talk of giving citizenship to anyone right now. The only thing is, number one, Indians have to be brought back and then whoever is an Afghan citizen meets the conditions given out by the Indian government, they can be given asylum. So that is the, via this visa category, right? So right. that is the only discussion which is relevant right now. No, and it's also worth noting that even four weeks up to the, you know, eventual fall of Kabul, I think uh, IAF was carrying out some exercises and evacuating people and, and so on, right? So, all right, uh, moving on. There's been an implosion of sorts uh, uh, with respect to the tech sector in China. Uh, China has proposed wide-ranging reforms clamping down on their tech uh, companies. This move has wiped out more than $1.5 trillion from Chinese stocks. Wow. The move was made reportedly uh, to, quote, maintain fair and reasonable market competition 
One of the legislatures also include a data protection law that means companies will now need to comply with strict rules on collecting and handling people's information. The proposals ranged from ensuring the rights of drivers who work for online companies to oversight of the live streaming industry. Nirav, as I mentioned, seems like a bit of an implosion. Uh, this also has a ring of eventuality attached to it, uh, right? Uh, what do you make of all of this? Okay, so I think, see, China has been clamping down on tech companies. It started somewhere uh, middle of last year. First one was uh, Alipay IPO was shelved. Uh, so Alibaba's financial arm, so fintech arm, so that IPO was shelved. Then second was the car uh, ride healing app uh, DD. Uh, they were advised not to do an IPO in the US, but they still went ahead. So after that, their uh, app was removed from the Chinese app stores. So that was the next one. Then they have clamped down on like online or ed tech companies, online tutoring companies, saying that that affects like high cost of education is discouraging childbirth and they want to encourage more children. Uh, because of their demographic issues. And now they've come up with this data protection law, which again is hit the Chinese. So equivalent of the Chinese fangs. So in, in the US, you have fangs or fa uh, fang M. And uh, here in China, you have uh, BAT. So Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and like another company, Meituan, is added to that list. So these companies have borne the brunt of it because uh, China is regulating on how the apps are collecting data as well as how the companies are using it. Uh, so uh, this is also quite contradictory to China itself has, the government itself collects data on its citizens as, and maintains a social credit score. So I think uh, this is some friction. Uh, what this, if you look beyond these things, I think what is the signal that the leadership is giving is probably they've focused, they feel that in the previous two decades, they focused a lot on wealth creation and now they're worried about inequality. So now mm -hmm. they're looking at more redistribution. Uh, they believe that the tech sector has become extremely powerful and they control a lot of data. They have a lot of information about all the citizens and they want to clamp that down. Also, you're seeing decoupling between uh, you saw from when China joined WTO in 2001, they were getting coupled into in the same phase with the West in terms of trade, in terms of economy, in terms of a uh, lot of Chinese companies IPOing in the US, a lot of US investors buying Chinese shares. They even created an avenue via Hong Kong called eight shares. So these are Chinese shares listed in Hong Kong, which is bulk of the market. So all of that, now we are seeing that they are trying to decouple more from Western investors as well as the Western business cycle. So. Probably the seeds were sown with the Donald Trump trade war started by Donald Trump. But now we are seeing Chinese are actually trying to move away. And this was the bad news. The other two uh, relevant news coming out of China was uh, they had one NBFC. So I would say the closest parallel is an NBFC like ILNFS, uh, what happened in India. So there's a uh, Chinese asset management company called Warong, uh, which was un under financial trouble. And uh, this week there was an announcement for a large capital injection in, into it by the government. So this is giving a signal that certain sectors of the economy who are lending more to the domestic focused economy, they are more important. Similarly, there is a Chinese property developer called Evergrande. Uh, this is the world's largest real estate company and it is the company with the largest amount of debt outstanding. So it's also in some amount of financial trouble, but housing is a very important domestic sector. So those are the sectors that they want to promote. The CEO of Evergrande had actually come for the 100th anniversary of uh, the Communist Party. So he was seen with uh, President Xi Jinping at that event.
you are seeing that china is moving away from tech they are moving away from uh, being coupled with the west they are trying to decouple and this has major implications for india i would say this is a very big opportunity that uh, western investors who have they made a lot of money in the previous two decades no doubt about it but now they are seeing that the marginal return on investment is probably lower and they would look to diversify away from china into india we are already seeing that happening with a lot of investments into unicorns by softbank and a lot of other venture capital firms so i think this will continue as well as uh, this kind of goes into the thing where uh, you cannot be it's a signal also to the western world you cannot have all your supply chain being critically sourced uh, sourced from china because the rules could change very rapidly and what was beneficial to you may not be so i think these are the two things that you can take out of it but i think this will continue for a long time it's start of a trend it's like a super tanker has turned so they moved in line with the global economy and now the tide has turned and now they're moving away and this is not going to reverse anytime soon yeah so just to add on to i need to miss this guy Facebook equivalent where people are just chatting with each other, or are you making an AI technology which can be used for warfare versus the West? Right. So, so the basic idea is to incentivize your most talented people and channelize them into industries and organizations which will add to China's national power. So, do you want your smartest guy to make the latest social media feature or a weapon? Right. China. and xi jinping would prefer if they made a weapon right rather than a new feature or a new color on a app right so that's that's a very sort of interesting speculation i don't think there is any other country which thinks in these kind of high level civilizational or national terms today in today's day and age so something to really ponder upon for all of us actually yeah. I, i wanted to add a bit on this american and hungarian american uh, investor george soros he has written an op-ed in the wall street journal and again he goes into like uh, the thinking on like why or like what is the challenge so what he says is uh, xi jinping has actually changed the rules of the communist party for the term limit and now he can be ruler for life or president for life but that has not does not apply to the other members so the premier so equivalent of say a prime minister in other countries li keqiang so lkq is initials uh he would be uh, ending his term in 2022 next year whereas she would be continuing so what he has done is he's trying to frame and even though they don't have elections trying to get the people's uh, legitimacy by people wanting him instead of like any other party members as well as clamping down on like big tech probably is to show that uh, like jack ma or pony ma of 10 cent they became much uh larger than life figures so th- those are being uh controlled or clamped down on so that the biggest personality 
remained Xi Jinping, so that his tenor extension goes through smoothly. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's you know it's also perception as we talked about earlier, right? I mean there can only only be one seat of power in China, and that clearly has to rest with the CCP. There's no and and more specifically with the Xi Jinping, right? And uh, uh, I think India stands to gain from all of this really because uh, if you look at July, for example, uh, venture capital in India exceeded that of China for the first time I think in many many months, right? In fact, I think it could be the first ever, right? Uh, and uh, um i i think already we were sort of uh, sort of starting to see this trend of you know venture capital money investment money coming into india because of a sort of a non china uh, wave and this has only accelerated that so yeah certainly you know an interesting thing to watch out for all right um, to end the weekly on a more positive note uh, uh, you know let's talk about uh, the, the wonderful game uh, that we had at lords right uh, uh, in what is being called one of the most intense matches Uh, in the 207 year history of lords india beat back defeat to win the match against england uh, the 151 run victory had many highlights uh, including mohammad siraj's uh, bowling performance then the unbeaten uh, partnership of 89 runs uh, between uh, jaspreet bumrah and mohammad shami uh, so abhishek uh, this was a perfect independence day gift for us huh? yeah so i think we'll, we'll stay with the lenin court theme so i mean we've gone through decades without <laughs> winning you know such matches away from home and now this year we've had both gaba and lords right both really i would say two of the greatest indian test wins away from home uh, really amazing match uh, we started well uh, rakel rahul 100 rohit sharma 80 we, we put up a good total but by the end of the fourth day i think england were well in control of the match right we we looked uh, pretty down and out the last days uh, play totally turned it around right and uh, firstly bumrah and shami with the bat put up a terrific ninth wicket partnership and then later all four indian pacers uh, managed to bowl out england within 60 overs to give a really thrilling win the sort of uh, aggression shown by the indian pacers post the whole bumrah versus anderson uh, sort of spat that happened would is quite uh, memorable I would probably request or ask the viewers to check out the latest video by Ashwin who although he didn't play the match he's continued so he is like carry right he keeps producing great youtube content so <laughs> check out his latest episode on the lords match i think you'll enjoy it a lot yeah i mean uh, thanks uh, thanks abhishek hi uh, hi praise uh, you know uh but yeah i mean he runs a very entertaining channel and you know i mean if you understand tamil especially he has a bunch of uh, people uh, coming on and talking on his uh, uh, youtube channel right do definitely check it out all right uh, that brings us to a wrap of the bharat vartha weekly this week uh, uh, next week we have a premium episode coming out on mathura this is of course part of our series ayodhya kashi and mathura with vivek ketan uh, we've published the previous uh, episode do check it out it's members only it's available on our youtube channel and you should be able to access it if you're a member this will have again rich insights and anecdotes and historical uh, uh, you know uh, facts and perspectives on uh, mathura itself It will be a treat for all cultural history uh, fans for sure right so all right uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, this week it was a pleasure to bring you all of this uh, news and events and perspectives uh, with my friends abhishek and nirav and hope to see you soon